Welcome to the FaithBridge Sermon Podcast. Be sure to keep watching immediately after the sermon for Postscript, a weekly podcast with in-depth content and answers to your questions submitted during the sermon. You can also find it on iTunes or at faithbridge.org slash postscript. I was nine years old when I figured out that my mom had cancer. Things started to get bad for my mom health-wise, I think my seventh grade year. At first, it came kind of as a shock to me, and I was like, they must have the wrong guy. And I just kind of looked around, and I was just kind of in shock at first. Closer to the end of that year, they had told us that she was cancer-free. We were just like, okay, this is great. Um, But then a week or two later, they told us it was back. And I think that's when it was at its highest, like, point. And Lisa was there to help get my mom wherever she needed. And she'd bring me and my siblings to church if we wanted to go to an event or something. In the spring of 2011, I met Kaya and her mother. And she had been diagnosed with cancer for the past three years before that. And got to know her and her family, as well as her sister, Sayla, and brother, Parker. Kind of the relationship with Kaya grew and her mom's health deteriorated. Um, Lisa actually got very involved in taking her mom to doctor's appointments and and appointments downtown. And uh, I think it was one night we were in bed and she was talking about, um, you know, what happens if she ends up passing away. As Sarah's cancer progressed, um, she probably began to think Uh, What about my children after I'm gone? So she began to ask uh, Lisa about possibly taking her kids should she pass away. Um, And at first it was probably overwhelming. They weren't ready for three more kids. We went to church and Ben Stewart was speaking and her mom had asked us several times about, you know, would we take the kids? And we weren't real sure that, that we could do that. We knew it was a big undertaking. And I don't remember the whole sermon, really what it was all about. I just know that at one point he made a comment along the lines of, you know, God could be asking you right now to do something you really don't want to do, but you know it's the right thing to do, and you need to say yes. And I just know we both looked at each other and went, okay, fine. You're right. And that was kind of it. Not really good with the dates, but I remember... Um, at a certain moment, uh, mom sort of mentioning, hey, you know, there's going to be these three kids coming over, staying for a while. I guess I thought it was just more of like a temporary sort of, all right, kids are bunking with us for a few days, few weeks, that's cool. Yeah, and, it, and over time, it kind of, you know, we, I guess we both begin to realize that they're not leaving ever. <laughs> so it was a process of being like, oh, okay, you know, this temporary thing may not be as temporary as we thought. Um, it was really chaotic in the beginning. And um, with three new children, plus her three kids, you know, I was able to take some here and there as I needed to and hold someone's hand if someone was having a particularly difficult time. For me, it's just I put up this whole, I didn't care about anything for a really long time. Like, I didn't want to be here. 
and this was forced upon, like, upon me and my family, and I didn't have to be here, and I can leave whenever I want. First, I blew up a lot on Lisa and Chris and everyone, pretty much, and I'd yell at them, and we'd argue a lot back and forth. The first year was really tough living with the Bartlett's because I didn't want to accept it. And because Chris was not really home all the time because he was at work, I usually took out my anger on Lisa. Their whole world had been turned upside down. Every single day was completely different than anything they ever knew. But there was something nearly every single day God had put a different person that stepped in at the precise moment that we needed someone. When you watch someone go through a tragedy, it really develops your compassion. Uh, there's not a book written on how to do it at all. You just rely on the Holy Spirit and pray a lot and you hug a lot, which I was already really good at and you listen and you support. You know, and I've told many people, if you don't have God in your life, I don't know how you, we would have survived those days. Because it was not easy some days. But we knew in the end it was going to get better, and it has. It just t took a lot from myself to just be like, you're here, you might as well accept the help while you have it because eventually you're gonna to go to college and have to experience everything by yourself like you want to do, but you're not ready yet. So it's just me having to learn that I'm not ready to be alone yet. There's been arguments at this house and things have been said, but I think we've overcome all that finally. And being able to really be a family is great. I'm able to talk to people and be like, can you drive me back to my house, to my mom, to my dad, to my brothers? I think it's great. They're my family, that I'm able to consider them a part of my life. I think of Chris, and I think of Lisa, and I think they had to have been terrified along this way. And I think of Sayla and Kaya and Parker, and they had to have been also scared. They lost their mother. Um, out of tragedy came a family. Um, the reaction of Chris and Lisa and their family was one of the gospel. When people start reacting to the world the way the gospel asks us to, I think we all win. I've been asked many times before if it was worth it and would I do it all over again. And my answer has always been yes, because we knew this is where they were meant to be. And how could we not take them into our home because we knew this is what we were meant to do. And. God has definitely blessed us in many ways with them being here and with our family and has made it abundantly clear they were ours and meant to be ours. It's been very touching for us to... Uh, to, to watch that story unfolding over the years uh, here. Well, I'm glad that you're here today. It's a special day. As you can tell, we're going to take a little time out from the Unshakable series that we've been doing on Daniel. 
I'll get back to that next week. But we just felt like for some time God's been saying, I want you to talk about this, the subject of orphan care and adoption. And so we're just going to do that uh, today. I'll tell you about our speaker just momentarily, but first let me just say welcome. Uh, welcome in this room, Center Court East. If you're in Center Court West, welcome. If you're at the Woodlands campus, welcome. So glad that you're a part of Faith Bridge today. And if you're um, with us by, uh, just online, it's great to have you here uh, as well. So welcome uh, to everybody. You're going to need a Bible, so why don't you take your Bible out and uh, go ahead and you can be turning to Galatians. And if you need a Bible, just raise your hand. And they'll be, the ushers will be in the aisles, and they'll be glad to let you borrow one. Or you can keep it. If you need a Bible, it's our gift to you. So you can just be doing that. And I'll tell you just briefly about our preacher for the day, Jason Johnson, um, who I've known about for years it, because our, our worlds just, you know how it is sometimes when you just, they almost overlap, and there's certainly people in our lives that overlap. Um, but we were talking about that even this morning. What a, uh, a cool thing that how God has brought him fully now and the ministry that he's doing into the awareness of Faith Bridge. And um, God's doing something here, and we just felt it would be most appropriate for him to come and to talk about it. Let's just say uh, Jason has committed his life now to help stories like the one we just saw uh, to happen in the body of Christ as people live out the gospel. I'll let him say all the rest. Why don't you welcome Jason Johnson as he comes to preach to us now. Thanks. Good morning, Faith Bridge. It's an honor to be here with you this morning. As Ken was saying, our world's have uh, almost intersected on, on many occasions, but my story with FaithBridge uh, began uh, many, many years ago in the Kleb days, if you were around during those days. I actually remember when this piece of property was purchased and actually came out to a tent service that was here. Some of you might have actually been there, and the reason was because I was doing student ministry in the Woodlands, and a couple of my buddies, guys named Chris Bowser, and then this, this, uh, this, this little guy that doesn't do much named Ben Stewart, was on staff here, and, uh, and, uh, and we were buddies, and so we, we would do student ministry together, and so it's just such a blessing to be here and to see all that the Lord has done here at this uh, incredible church. Uh, I live in College Station with Ben, actually, not in the same house, but in the same city. We go to the same church. We uh, drop our kids off in the same classrooms, and he and I are buddies, and uh, when I let him know that I was uh, going to be able to be here, he was thrilled, and it's just, it's just an honor to be here with you guys uh, this morning. Uh, so I live in Aggieland. That's the maroon and white world I come from. Whoop it out now. There we go. And uh, we had a good night last night. And uh, amen. Sermon done. Yeah, let's go. <laughs> go home and watch the Texans. Uh, I probably shouldn't say this, but there's an officer out in the, in the lobby. And uh, he said, hey, Jason, hey, come here. And uh, he had his hand on his gun. And he said, you know, the Texans play at noon, right? <laughs> I said, I think I know what you're implying. Make it quick, right? But 
so I come from this maroon and white world. I also come from a very pink world, this estrogen-filled world. You'll see a little bit of that here in a little bit. I've got four daughters and my wife. Um, and so I spent a lot of time building stuff in the garage because that's just where uh, the testosterone has a place to run and play for a little while. But I love it, nine, seven, five, and three. And uh, I just love the pink and maroon and white world that I live in. What we're going to do this morning is, is really frame the issue of orphan care and the issue of adoption and even the issue of foster care within the gospel. And we're going to do that not, uh, not by manufacturing something from Scripture that doesn't exist, but by looking intently into Scripture and finding that that's exactly what Scripture does for us on its own. You see, there's several pieces of imagery that God through the inspiration of human authors in the Bible, seems to use to help us understand the nature of our salvation. Let me say it this way. This idea that, this, that we've been saved, this salvation, this big theological, conceptual idea, it's as if God said, huh, how can I help my people understand this big theological, conceptual idea in a very tangible, practical, real way? in a physical way that they can see and touch and smell and taste and hold on to. And we see imagery, Im- pieces of imagery all throughout scripture where it's as if God is saying, this will help them understand, this will help them understand, this will help them understand. Examples is, one is marriage that we see all through the New Testament. We see that the writings on marriage suggest that marriage is this entity which exists, this covenant which exists, which is primarily meant to point us to and be a reflection of the gospel. That husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This big theological conceptual idea that Jesus gave himself up for us that we might have salvation. And God says, I know, I'll create marriage. And I'll use husband and wife relationship as a physical, tangible representation that you can touch, taste, feel, see, experience so that they can understand in better ways this big theological idea. Another thing that God uses throughout scripture is this idea of the body of Christ. It's this physical, tangible body. And it's this idea that your salvation in a very tangible, practical way is nothing more than this. You were once outside of the body, but now through Jesus you've been brought inside. And some of us have been grafted in as hands or feet or toes or ears or eyes or pinky fingers, whatever the case may be. But you were once outside and now you are inside. Big theological, conceptual idea, now made very practical and real for us. Literally, to the extent we can experience it in this room even now. We can see it, feel it, experience it in a practical, tangible way. This is a picture of our salvation. We were once outside of the body of Christ, now we're inside. One of the paramount pieces of imagery that God uses throughout scripture to help illustrate and point us to this big theological concept of our salvation is this beautiful story of adoption. And we see that word pop up all through scripture. And when we do, it should cause us pause because it's meant to point us to, in a very practical and tangible physical way, this big theological spiritual concept. That the nature of our salvation is such that we were once outside of the family of God, but we have now been adopted and brought into the family of God through Jesus. And everything has changed as a result of it. 
So as we read scripture and we come across this imagery of adoption of the family of God, then it causes us to reflect on this big theological idea that our salvation is such that we are now loved sons and daughters of a father who lavishes his extravagant grace on us and changes everything about who we are as a result. To the extent that Jesus, when he instructs us to pray, he even says, here's how I want you to pray. Our Father who art in heaven. What a significant statement that Jesus teaches us when you refer to God, you can refer to him as Father. The implications of that and the power of that could not be overstated. That we get to come to God as children of his and refer to him as father and be loved as his sons and daughters and live within the provision and the protection and the affection of him. Paul in Galatians chapter 4, in one of the most beautiful places that he uses this pieces of imagery to illustrate the gospel for us, uses this idea of adoption to help us see this big theological conceptual idea in a very real, tangible, practical way. So Galatians chapter 4, he begins in verse 4 when he says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. There's that word. That should cause us to pause. Say, okay, he's illustrating something here. Because you are now sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then you are an heir through God. In verse four, Paul begins with my favorite A definition, if you will, of Christmas. It's my favorite Christmas verse that I very rarely hear taught at Christmas. We've got our traditional ones, but this is an incredible one. Where in a very short statement, Paul encapsulates the idea in the essence of Christmas. When the fullness of time had come, another translation could say um, something to the effect of at just the right time. And so Paul is suggesting here at just the right time throughout all the course of human history, God decided now is when Jesus will be born. Born of a woman and born under the law. Throughout all the course of human history, in the providential, sovereign knowledge of God, he decided right now is when I intercede into the brokenness of my people in order to bring salvation to them. That I will wrap myself in flesh, be born in the humility of an infant, in the midst of poverty, in the midst of hostility, literally, with a bullseye on my back, right now is the perfect time for me to interject myself into this broken world in order to save it. That's the essence of Christmas. And it screams to us so much about the character and the nature of God. It suggests to us this, that God is the kind of God that when he sees the plight of his people, he is compelled to respond And boy, does he respond in dramatic fashion. He's not the kind of God that says, I see your struggle, I see your brokenness, and I see your plight over there, and here I am over here. Now, if you could just get your act together enough, then maybe you too one day could be over here where I am. No, that's not God. God's the kind of God that says, I see your plight, I see you where you are, and I'm coming after you. And when God says, I see you where you are and I'm coming after you, 
You better believe that God's going to get you. Some of you are sitting in a seat this morning, and you know that God is after you, and it's time for you to just say, you got me. Because God gets what he wants. This is the character and the nature of God. I see your brokenness, and I don't remain at a distance. I don't remain on the peripherals. I interject myself into it. Not only do I I interject myself into your brokenness, but I take your brokenness upon myself, and I allow your brokenness to break me so that you don't have to be broken anymore. How amazing is that? That God is the kind of God that sees the plight of his people and responds in dramatic fashion at just the right time. Paul then begins to lay out for us the effect of that, the result of that. In verse five, he says, he did this to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption. There's that word as sons. The contrast between verse four and verse five could not be more significant. In verse five, Paul says that we were under the law. That's where we were positionally. That Scripture says we were condemned under the weight of that law, that we could not live up to. The righteous standard of God was something that we can never achieve on our own, that even our best efforts fell short of the standard of God. We were condemned under the weight of this law. Scripture goes so far as to say that in that position, there was odds between us and God. Our relationship between uh, us and God was defined by enmity, that we were objects of the wrath of God, Scripture says. Now look, I've grown up in a pastor's home, I've done the seminary thing, I've done the ministry thing my whole life, and I don't understand to the fullest extent that we can what it means to be the object of the wrath of God. I do know one thing though, it sounds really, really bad. And we can all agree that in our condition outside of Jesus, it's really, really bad. But look at verse four now, going back. We were condemned under the weight of this law that we could not get ourselves out from underneath. And that's exactly where Jesus met us. That at just the right time, God sent forth his son, born under the law. Picture in your head just this lowly place, under the law, to redeem those, verse 5, who were under the law. That not only is God the kind of God that sees us where we are and comes after us, but he's also the kind of God that meets us exactly where we are. In order, verse 5, to redeem us out from that and to bring us into the family of God through adoption. Consistently in the New Testament, when especially Paul outlines the gospel for us, he does so in this multi-generational way, this holistic, comprehensive way. Here's what I mean by that. I mean that the gospel cannot be compartmentalized. It doesn't operate in silos. We're not able to say, I believe Jesus forgives me of my past, but I'm not quite sure if he's really in control of my present. That's not how the gospel works. Or we can't say, I believe he's forgiven me of my past, he's, he's with me in my present, but I'm really concerned about whether or not he's got control of the future. That's not how the gospel works. We can't silo and compartmentalize it that way. When Paul lays out the gospel on a consistent basis, he does so in this holistic, comprehensive way, this multi-generational way. It's as if he's saying this, look, there is no part of who you are that goes untouched or unaffected by the work of Jesus. Past, present, 
and future. Everything has been dealt with. Everything is covered. And in verse 5, he says, your past condition, condemned under the weight of the law that you could not live up to, has been decisively dealt with. Jesus took that condemnation on himself, redeemed you out from underneath it, and changed everything about you. Some of you in the room this morning, that's all that you need to hear. You need to know that in Jesus, your past has been decisively dealt with. The old is gone and the new has come. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Your past no longer condemns you, it actually compels you to worship. Here's this crazy beautiful thing about grace, is that it's able to take the things which once condemned us and they now become the things which compel us to worship. Because I can look back on my past and I can say, rather than my past condemning me, I can look at the difference Jesus has made and it can compel me to worship him for his power and his grace. Some of you in this room this morning need to know that your past no longer defines you. Some of you in this room this morning need to know that under the condemnation that you still live within, Jesus can redeem you and set you free. He meets you exactly where you are. He's not the kind of God that says, get your act together and come where I, where I am. He's the kind of God that says, I see you where you are and I'm coming after you. And some of you in the room this morning need to say, I'm yours. But it doesn't end there. Our past has been decisively dealt with. And then in verse six, Paul continues. He says, because you are sons now, because God has sent the spirit of a son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father, your present reality has been changed. Your past has been decisively dealt with and now present language. You are now children of God. You right now have the spirit within you which is giving you the capacity to cry out to God and to refer to God as Abba. What a beautiful word. The word Abba is best translated in a very tender and affectionate way. It's the difference between my four daughters calling me and referring to me as father, very proper, cold, British accent, I always imagine their hands crossed, right? Versus them referring to me and approaching me as daddy, which is what they do. I'm not father, I'm daddy. That is a significantly different posture which implies a significantly different relationship. Here's the beautiful picture that Paul is painting. That outside of Jesus, under the weight of condemnation, our relationship with God was marked by odds and enmity. Now, in our new present reality, our relationship with God is defined by intimacy and affection. How great is that? This comprehensive, monumental shift where once before we had to be afraid of going to God and how he would respond to us. Now, as dearly loved sons and daughters, we don't have to be afraid of how God's going to respond. We can't anticipate because we know exactly how God is going to respond as a good daddy would. Even in our shortcomings, even in our failures, he'll respond with grace and affection and intimacy and love because that's what a good daddy does. Not only has our past been decisively dealt with, our present reality has been shifted and altered. Some of you in the room this morning simply need to know that. You need to know that in Jesus right now, God is not angry with you and God is not disappointed in you. 
all the anger of God and all the disappointment of God towards your sin has been poured out on the back of Jesus for you. It's been dealt with. Even in your failures, even in your shortcomings now, God is not angry with you. That we can run to his throne of grace and know exactly how he's going to respond like a good daddy does. That is our new present reality. But it doesn't end there. It's just like this really great infomercial that keeps getting better and better. The deal keeps getting better and better. Verse 7. So you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then you are an heir through God. Our past has been dealt with. Our present reality has been altered. And now the future trajectory of our lives have been shifted for all of eternity. We are now heirs of God. Heirs through God. Heirs of the glory. An heir is someone who lives now with the confidence and the guarantee of what's to come tomorrow. We live right now with the confidence and the guarantee that in the end, Jesus wins. We live right now with a deposit guaranteeing what's to come, Scripture says. We live right now in a world where our outward bodies are wasting away, Romans says, but our inward bodies are groaning for and longing for the glory that will be revealed. We live in a world right now that is worthy of our outward bodies being wasted away and our inward souls longing and groaning for something greater, right? The irony of the world that we live in is this, is that the world wants us to love the things of the world, but the world also wants us to be afraid of the world. Do you notice this? You watch 24-hour news stations. You watch the news this afternoon, and everything's breaking news. It's the end of the world. It's the next big crisis, right? We're about to endure a year-long presidential campaign. That's crisis enough, right? Like, this is the end of the world, right? But every politician's the new antichrist. Every disease is the one that's going to wipe us all out. Uh, Every economic downturn is the one that's going to have us all eating beans out of the gutter, on the streets of spring and Klein, right? I mean, everything is the end of the world. You go and see a movie these days, half the previews are apocalyptic in nature. Your most popular shows on cable and Netflix are apocalyptic in nature. Everything is the end of the world. The world wants us to love the world, but the world wants us to be really afraid of the world as well. But you know what? You and I, we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid of what's to come. Because we know, in the end, Jesus wins. We live right now today with the assurance and the confidence and the guarantee of what's to come. We live in neighborhoods, we work in offices, we sit in classrooms, we attend social gatherings, our kids play on sports teams and cheerleading uh, groups and all of these different things that are filled with people who are afraid. And they need to see you and I not afraid. And they need to ask us why we're not afraid and we need to tell them why we're not afraid. Because we know, in the end, Jesus wins. This is the comprehensive, holistic, multi-generational story of redemption in our lives. No part of who we are goes untouched or unaffected by the work of Jesus interceding on our behalf and changing everything as a result. Seeing the plight of our brokenness, engaging himself in it, taking the brokenness upon himself, altering our present reality and shifting the future trajectory of our lives for. Ever. You see, when we talk about the gospel, when we talk about orphan care, when we talk about adoption and foster care, 
We talk about those things in tandem together because orphan care and adoption and foster care, like the gospel, is a multi-generational story of redemption. The parallels between the gospel and adoption and foster care and orphan care are beautiful and unending. What you and I are being given the privilege and the mandate and the opportunity to do is to see the plight of the brokenness of kids all around us and to no longer remain on the peripherals, but to say, I see you where you are, and I'm coming after you. I'm engaging in the brokenness of your story. I'm taking your brokenness upon me, and I want to alter your present reality, where your past was once defined by abuse and neglect and insecurity. Your present reality has now put an end to that, and security and identity and love and affection define your present reality. And as a result of that, it shifts the future trajectory of these kids' lives forever. The parallels between the gospel in us and the gospel through us into their lives are beautiful and unending. You see, you and I in this room are called to celebrate deeply that gospel in us, but we're also called to demonstrate widely that gospel through us. But here's the beautiful thing about the body of Christ, is that while we all celebrate the same gospel, we all don't demonstrate that gospel in the same ways. Because some of us are ears and some of us are eyes and some hands and some feet and some toes. And that's the beautiful diversity of the body of Christ coming together and saying we all don't have to do the same thing, but we can all certainly do something. And we're not all called to do the same thing, but we are all absolutely capable of doing something. Romans chapter 12, Paul says, as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. When we apply that grid to orphan care, we find this to be true, that orphan care is not just about adoption. Orphan care is not just about foster care. Orphan care is not just about bringing a child into your home. Now let's be clear. God is going to lead some of you And he is right now to bring children into your home. And you need to do that. But let's also be clear, God is not going to lead some of you to bring children into your home. And as a matter of fact, the absolute worst thing you can do for yourself and that kid is to bring them into your home, right? That just nobody wins. And that's how it's supposed to be. God doesn't call us all to do the same thing. But he does say everyone's capable of doing something. So what does that look like? It means that the buffet of opportunities gets thrown wide open. It's not just about these narrow opportunities, but the, the opportunities to get involved in orphan care are endless and full of creativity. And to the extent that this body here is diverse, so are the opportunities to get involved. So it could mean this, very practically. It could mean that a family in this church is feeling led to adopt internationally, but they're worried about the price, the money it will cost. But here's the great thing about a church like this is that there's a guy sitting across the room that's not going to bring a child into his home, but he's sitting on a heap of cash and he wants to invest it significantly in the kingdom of God. And that's how the body of Christ works. Some of you might be called to adopt and some of you in this room are called to pay for them and you need to do it. These are all equal, equally significant roles. Different functions, unique in diversity, but equally significant. Some of you in this room, you just shoved your last kid out the door a few weeks ago, off to college, and you are living the empty nester life. You're like, this is awesome. We're cruising around the world, right? This is wonderful. And you're saying, I'm not bringing kids into my home. We've been there and done that. 
Great, don't. But you know what? There's families in your church in their 20s, 30s, 40s that are bringing kids into their home, and they need you to be there for them while they're there doing it. They need seasoned veteran parents who have raised kids to come alongside and mentor and serve and support because that's how the body of Christ works. Some of you say, you know what? I'm not going to bring a kid into my home. I don't have the money to help pay for adoptions. I don't know what I can do, but I'd make a mean casserole. Great. You know what? Just like when new babies are born in our churches, we inundate them with casseroles on the, on the meal calendar. How about every time a foster or an adoptive child is placed in a home in this church, that there is a team of somebody that is just, that's cooking casseroles out the wazoo for them, right? And you better believe that you ask that family, hey, do you believe that the casserole ministry is, is a very important and powerful one for you? And they'll say, absolutely. Thank God for them. The opportunities to get involved are endless and full of creativity. To the extent that this church is diverse, so are the opportunities to get involved. We're not all called to do the same thing, but we are all capable of doing something. And if you and I are people in this room that claim to celebrate that multi-generational story of the gospel in us, then we are also a people called to demonstrate that multi-generational story of the gospel through us. As Jesus interjected himself into our brokenness, we enter the brokenness of the world around us in order to see redemption give birth. And on some, in some way and on some level, we all have the capacity and the calling to interject ourselves into brokenness and to change everything as a result of it. It's not a surprise that this world is fatally flawed. It's not a surprise that this world is broken. There's evidences all around us, economy, wars, politics, all of these things, sickness, cancer, We're daily reminded that the world is not how it's supposed to be. But this isn't a new thing. For centuries and centuries and centuries, the world has operated in a way that it's just not supposed to be like this. It's not supposed to be this way. There are things which are normative in our culture today, which were not normative in God's original creation. And it's evidence to us that this is not how it's supposed to be. Cancer is normal. Economic downturns are normal. War is normal. These things are normal. Some things have been legalized, and this is just not how it's supposed to be. But it's not a new thing. You look all the way back in Genesis, and there's evidences, even in Genesis, that what was abnormal in God's ideal creation has now become normal. A couple of examples. We just moved uh, to College Station last summer, and we're building a house on, on a little bit of land, and in the back there's some brush. I'm not an outdoorsy guy. My idea of camping is downtown Houston room service and like a lazy river at a resort somewhere, right? That's me. And I got four girls and and their favorite things are iPad, all this stuff, right? So I'm like, you know what? We're going to go outside. We're going to go clear some brush in in the back of the property. I don't know why. There's brush back there and that's just what you're supposed to do. You clear brush, right? So we go back there and they're like, dad, what are we doing? Can we bring our iPads, all this stuff, you know? And like, we're going to clear some brush. And so we're out there, and we're fishing around. And on several occasions, we've been out there. And there are just these massive vines on our, on our property with these huge thorns on them. And we're getting poked and pricked and prodded. And I'm getting cut up. And, and they're complaining and whining. And ah, everything's drama. It's all drama in my world, right? <laughs> and I, on many levels, I'm thinking, this is not how it's supposed to be. This is not how it's supposed to go, right? But on, on really kind of a deep level, This is not how it's supposed to be. There should not be thorns and thistles on these vines. They shouldn't be cutting me and poking me and prying me. This is a reminder. 
It's something normal in our world that was abnormal in God's original design. When you look back in Genesis, you see that when the sin enters the picture, the curse comes down on man, and specifically the curse is you're going to work the ground, and the ground is going to work against you. It's another way of saying work is going to be hard. It's just going to be hard. But on top of that, just to add a new level of hardness and difficulty, there will now be thorns and thistles on vines and branches. That suggests to me that perhaps in the Garden of Eden, pre-sin, there were no such thing as thorns and thistles. And now, the symbol of beauty and love in our culture, a rose, is something that we have to be careful with because it might hurt us. That's not how it's supposed to be. Another example, tracing back to the early days of Genesis, is the fact that every one of us walked into this room this morning fully clothed. None of us are naked, as far as I can tell. You would have been stopped at the front door, unless you're just that kind of church, but I don't think you are, right? (laughs) Every one of us in this room are clothed, and you know what? Bear with me. That's not how it's supposed to be. Trace back to Genesis. Adam and Eve were naked, and what's the description? Unashamed. No shame. What's there to be shameful of? We know no other. This is how it's supposed to be. Sin enters the picture. Their immediate instinctual reaction is to cover themselves and to run and hide. And from that moment on, throughout all the course of human history, you and I, every day, have gotten up, gone to our dressers, gone to our closets, and in effect, chosen what today's shame coverings are going to be. This daily physical reminder that this is not how it's supposed to be. There's another aspect of our culture and our world which exists largely around us, even right here in our own city, which has become a normative aspect of our world, but by no means is how it's supposed to be. And it's the reality that on a daily basis, right here in our own city, every hour on average, there is a confirmed case of child abuse. Every hour. That is not how it's supposed to be. There is a subculture of children right here within our city and around the world that are languishing in systems that aren't taking care of them. And they're aging out of homes without families. And that is not the way it's supposed to be. And you and I have the beautiful opportunity not only to celebrate the gospel in us, but to demonstrate the gospel through us by saying, I see you where you are. I'm engaging in your broken story. I want to alter your present reality and change the course of your life forever to interject ourselves into brokenness with the beauty of the gospel of Jesus. When I was nine years old, I learned that the man I had grown up calling dad was in fact not my biological father. And I found this out on accident. I was snooping around in my parents' uh, stuff, and I came across an old report card of my older sister, four years older than me, and there was a different last name on the report card. And I took it to my mom, and I said, Mom, what's the deal? Why is her last name wrong? My mom said, well, actually, I guess we need to talk. And thus ensued this impromptu family meeting between myself and my mom and my dad. And they began to share with me what the early days of my life looked like that I was wholly unaware of. Days that were marked in our family by abuse and neglect uh, and insecurity at the hands of a biological father that you named the vice and he excelled at it. It ultimately left my mom in a position of being alone with two uh, very cute pieces of baggage and a really broken story. She strolls into a church one Sunday up in Dallas and sees a worship leader up on stage. They eventually develop a friendship and a relationship, fall in love, and at the age of 23, 
my dad gets down on his knee and asks to take the hand of my mom in marriage, and in so doing, asks to take the hand of my sister to become his daughter and my hand to become his son. In effect, my dad got down before my mom and said, I know the broken story that you come from, and I willingly accept it as my own. He adopted me as his own, changed my first, middle, and last name. Completely new reality. New identity, new present reality. Once defined by insecurity and, 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 and abuse and vices, now defined by, by comfort and provision and protection. There hasn't been a day that's gone by since learning of that story when there has, there's been a fleeting thought that crosses my mind, where would I be right now had my dad not interjected himself into my story and changed everything about it? Changed my name, changed my identity, changed my present reality and the future trajectory of my life. Doing ministry, standing in the hospital room watching my daughters being born. The most profound occurrence for me was at the age of 23, standing before all of our friends and family in a room this size, marrying the woman of my dreams, and my pastor dad is officiating the ceremony. An already surreal moment, your wedding day, now compounded by the fact that in that moment I realize I right now at 23 am the same age that he was when he took my hand to be his son, when he engaged himself in my story. And now here I am marrying this woman who would never give the kind of guy I would have been the time of day had this man not stepped into my life. Fast forward some 30 years later, after my dad enters my story, and my wife and I have the opportunity to become licensed foster parents, along with a community of people in our church. After months of training, we sign our license, and three weeks later, we get a phone call, and two hours later, a three-day-old baby girl is brought to our front door in the woodlands. And she ruined everything in the most beautiful ways. We lived in the woodlands in a very comfortable place. That's the woodlands middle name, comfort, right? Everything was good. The house fit our three kids, the car fit our three kids. We were coasting along, everything's fine. And then a three-day-old baby girl is placed into our arms and the physical abuse and neglect and the brokenness and the tragedy that she's come from in the last nine months in utero and even three days on this planet is more physical abuse than many of us will ever experience in a lifetime. And it is impossible to hold a tragically broken story like that in your comfortable arms and not have your comfort broken as a result of it. As we sit down at the table to fill out paperwork with Child Protective Services, our other three daughters are over, uh, doting over her in the car seats, and the thought hits me, we now are being given the opportunity to do for her what my dad had done for me some 30 years before. I see your broken story. I understand your broken story. I take your broken story upon myself, and we want to change your present reality once marked by insecurity and abuse, now defined by comfort and love and peace and and security. And in so doing, change the future trajectory of this little girl's life forever. There hasn't been a day that's gone by since she's been in our home and she's never left. We've since adopted her as our own daughter. And on adoption day, we were able to change her first, middle, and last name as well. She and I now share that story. There hasn't been a day that's gone by when my wife and I haven't paused and considered where would she be right now, what would she be doing right now had uh, had we not been given the opportunity to interject ourselves into her story. Where would she be sleeping? Who would she be playing with? What would she be eating? 
And in all of this, I think we're all compelled to step back on some level at multiple times in our life and to consider, where would I be right now? What would I be doing right now had Jesus not interjected himself into my broken story? Most of us in this room would probably say, I wouldn't be in this room. That's for sure. Where would I be right now had Jesus not interjected himself into my story, altered my present reality, and shifted the future trajectory of my life forever? Where would I be right now had he not taken my brokenness upon himself, allowed my brokenness to break him, and change everything about me as a result of that? Where would I be right now? And this then becomes the foundation upon which we are compelled to do for them exactly what Jesus has done for us. We're not all called to do the same thing, but we are all certainly capable of doing something. We want to be a people who deeply celebrate the multi-generational story of our redemption. And in so doing, be a people who widely demonstrate that same story of redemption into the lives of the marginalized, the abused, the neglected, and the orphaned around us. The beautiful thing about Jesus is that he never asks us to do for others what he hasn't already perfectly and sufficiently done for us. That what compels us towards them is what compelled him towards us. I see you where you are, and I'm coming after you. Let's pray. So, Father, we ask for wisdom, we ask for courage, and we ask for discernment. As people wrestle in their hearts, perhaps where you're leading them and how you've uniquely wired them to respond. I pray for clarity of thought, Father. I pray for those people in this room that they've been thinking about this for a long time and it's just time for them to say yes. They've run through every excuse in the book and they know it and we know it. And it's just time for them to say yes. I pray for the courage and the boldness through your spirit for them to say yes. For some people just need to, we need to get some more information about this. And maybe it's just attending the next meeting to get more information. And then for others in this room, there are, there are some in this room that need to be reminded that Jesus has dealt a decisive death blow to our past. There is therefore now no condemnation. We have been set free. For some in this room, we need to be reminded that right now in our present reality, you are not angry with us. You are not disappointed in us. All of that has been poured out on the back of Jesus. We can approach your throne of grace today with anticipation, knowing exactly how you will respond to us like a good daddy will. And some of us need to know that we don't need to be afraid of tomorrow. We don't need to be afraid of the future. There's a spirit of fear over our lives about what's to come. And I pray that you would give us a spirit of boldness and assurance and confidence and steadiness because we know in the end, Jesus wins. May we be a people who deeply, deeply celebrate these truths and a people who widely, widely demonstrate them as well. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Welcome to Postscript. Here we hope to answer your questions and help you dig deeper into the messages and sermons at FaithBridge by talking with the teacher of the day.
and welcome to Postscript. I'm Luann Riley, Grow Group Director, and I'm here with Jason Johnson from the Christian Alliance for Orphans. He just brought a message called Gospel and Our Adoption on Galatians. Welcome, Jason. Thank you. We are so glad to have you here today. Thank you. Um, we're going to look and ask, just talk about a few things, some questions that came in. Mm -hmm. um, we'll look at how do we know if we're called mm -hmm. after hearing a message like this? Um, what are ways that we can help um, foster parents or foster if maybe financially we don't think that we're in the right place. Mm -hmm. um, and we're also going to talk about um, what do we do if we feel called, but maybe our spouse doesn't, yeah. and then talk through just some practical next steps for people. Um, so let's get started. You ready? Right. Um, so you hear a message like this, um, which obviously invokes an emotional response as well mm -hmm. as a spiritual response. And so one of the questions is, how do I know if I am actually called to adopt or foster? Yeah. I think one of the things I would say is that there's a lot of people out there that they feel that fire in their heart. And many people's stories are, I've, we've been thinking about it for a long time. We've been praying about it for a long time. It's something we've always known we wanted to do. We're just never quite sure when. And so what I, what I would say to many people is, if you're someone that keeps thinking about it and talking about it and praying about it and desiring it, it probably means that you just need to do it. And, uh, it also probably means that you would do it really well. You'd be great at it. And so just that encouragement for people who wonder, we've thought about it for a long time, but we're never quite sure when's the right time. And the reality is, is that there's really never a perfect time to foster or adopt. There's always something that we're busy or the money or life stage. There's never a perfect time to foster or adopt. It really just comes down to us deciding now is the time to say yes despite the many reasons that we have to say no. Uh, and so I would encourage people in that. Um, second, I think that calling is such a funny word for a lot of people. Um, and uh, we, we use it sometimes to support why we're doing something or we use it sometimes to support why we're not doing something that maybe we should be doing. And so for me, it, it's more of um, a leading into it. And I think that on some level, we all are called in some capacity mm -hmm. to, to engage in the lives of the marginalized and the orphan. The question really is not so much, am I called? It's how am I mm -hmm. called? And helping people really discern that. And I think that one of the best ways for us to do that is in the context of community, mm -hmm. that we're able to go to those who know us best and say, hey, here's what I'm thinking, here's what we're feeling, and to really filter that through the people who know us best. You know, if I went to my some of my closest friends and said, guys, uh, I'm taking on a new ministry. It's going to be interpretive dance ministry, right? I would hope that they would love me enough to say, brother, uh, we don't think that that's the right thing for you right. to do, right? Um, and so in a more serious tone, going, going to close people and saying, here's what we're thinking. You guys speak into that for us. Help us refine that. Think through that. Um, and the truth is this, is that you never really know until you do it. Hmm. It's a lot like getting married. Are you ever really ready, ready? Right. I wasn't, Are you, and having kids. And so it's one of those things in life where you're ready enough, but you're never fully ready. Mm -hmm. And then the Lord is gracious to take care of you in, in the midst of it as you engage in it. Good, yeah. good, and I think that leads right into another question that came in, and that's, um, what if I am feeling called, but but my spouse is not? Yeah. Um, what would, what advice would you have there? Yeah. So, um, a lot of prayer and a lot mm -hmm. of patience, um, 
And I know that sometimes that feels like we're not really doing anything, but it's by far the most important thing we can do is to be praying that God would cultivate that in the heart of our spouse, be it a husband or a wife. But then there's some very practical things that we can do. If the scenario, and it most likely is the case that it's a husband or wife that really wants to open their home to children and the other spouse isn't quite sure, well then maybe you take a step back from, from that and you say, well, rather than starting with opening our home to a child, I'm going to find some other maybe uh, simpler ways to get involved. Mm -hmm. um, it could be providing meals. It could be um, becoming babysitters for foster parents. Just some simple things that we can do that that baby step us into this space without, without we're not diving off the, the high dive first mm -hmm. jump, you know? Okay. Uh, and really it's, it's, it's something that God does in people's hearts. He cultivates that passion in people's hearts. Our job isn't to cultivate that in people's hearts. Our job is to pray that God would and then to put kindling around the fire in their heart and, and beg God to use that kindling to burn that fire more and more. So it may be that a spouse is not totally opposed to it. They just have some concerns and maybe now's not the right time. Wonderful. Maybe there's an inkling of a fire there, and I'm just going to begin to put a little kindling around it. Um, and it could be we're going to we're going to sponsor a kid internationally through an organization, or we're going to become babysitters for a foster family we know, or we're going to cook meals. Just little pieces of kindling, and then you just pray that God would use that kindling to grow that fire. Good, yeah. good. And so uh, you talked about a few of the simple steps, um, but one of the questions that came in was um, someone who wants to help, mm -hmm. um, but says that financially or even logistically fostering or bringing a child into their home is yeah. not um, right for them at this time, but they want to be involved. What are things that you can do if those aren't where you... Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's some misconceptions, especially regarding foster care, that it's expensive to do foster care. And the reality is, is that um, it's actually not. It's, in many cases, it doesn't cost you anything. Uh, much of it is subsidized by the state and the county. Um, and so just removing some of those misconceptions for people. Um, but also uh, turning the tables back onto the church and saying, you know, if there's people in your church that are feeling led in certain directions, and there's a cost associated with those that they're not able to meet. Just as we discussed during the service, mm -hmm. that's an incredible opportunity to wrap other mm -hmm. people around that who say, you know what, we can take care of that need. Um, and these are different parts of the body performing different functions, but they're all equally important. Um, for a family who's bringing a child into their home, most of us would say that's the most important thing that anyone can do. And it is very important, but you better believe that family that's bringing the child into their home if they have someone financially helping them, they're saying that's the most important right. thing you can do. So all equally important. Um, and, and that's really the culture that we want to see established uh, at, in the church and, and even here at FaithBridge, that those types of needs are met and that those hurdles are removed before anybody ever even faces them. Uh, but then there's also just a whole other slew of opportunities for people, again, most people don't know that foster parents, if you have a foster child in your home, only a certified babysitter can mm -hmm. babysit that child. Right. And that means if you have other biological children and you want to go on a date night, you have to have a certified babysitter at your house because you have a foster home, a foster child in your home. And so it's a simple process of getting background checked and CPR certified. 
And it's a simple thing that a team of people in the church can do that goes a long way in serving and supporting foster families. And so that's a very practical thing. Again, some customary things that we do in churches. When a new baby is born, uh, there's meal there's a meal calendar for them. Mm -hmm. Let's do the same thing when a new foster placement comes right. or a new adoptive placement comes. Um, even on a church leadership level, uh, one thing, you know, we when a new baby is born, we have baby dedications. How about when a new foster placement comes, if there's a foster family dedication or an adoptive family dedication? Uh, there's certainly the financial uh, that people can come to the church and say, we, we want to financially support this cause uh, that people are living out in our church. Mm -hmm. There's just a whole slew of opportunities. Mm -hmm. Back to school time in July and August is important for gathering school supplies That's for kids right. who otherwise wouldn't mm -hmm. have them. Christmas time is a great opportunity mm -hmm. to bless kids in our city here in the foster care system. Uh, getting some men, a team of men that every Saturday goes and mows some foster families' yards. You know, these families, uh, they, they're bringing these children into their home, and with those children come court appointments and doctor's mm -hmm. appointments and caseworker visits and all of these added things that a, a team of guys could come and say, you know what, uh, we're going to remove one extra thing that you have to do, which right. is mow your yard. We're mm -hmm. just going to do it for you. And so, again, like we said, the opportunities are endless and full of creativity, and they're as diverse as the people in the church are. And so someone can come with, with here's what I'm really passionate about. I just met a guy in the lobby. He said, I'm going to be at the informational meeting next Sunday. I'm not adopting a kid, but I make a mean brisket. Hmm. And I said, great. They need to know who you are. You need to be at that meeting. You know, Here's a guy that says, I know what I can't do, and I know what I can do. Mm -hmm. And what I can do, I want to do for... Uh, a good purpose. You know? So good and yeah. what a great segue into the informational. Yeah. So if you are um, if you were here today or you listened online and you and you are interested the first step right is to come to yeah. the informational. Absolutely Thanks. and so next Sunday on the 20th mm -hmm. right after the 11 o'clock service lunch is provided, child care is provided and it is just an incredibly powerful time for people uh, to be drawn out of the masses of the church, if you will, and to come into a room together and to look around the room and, and just be overwhelmed by there is a community of people in my church mm -hmm. that share the same heart that I do. Mm -hmm. And you begin to hear people's stories and the power of everyone going around the room and saying, this is who we are and this is why we're here. And what ends up happening is you'll hear one story, this is who we are and this is why we're here. We're, we're newly married. We don't have any of our own kids, but... We just feel like we're going to adopt one day. Uh, and then the next person will stand up and say, we've been married 60 years, we've adopted nine children, we've fostered 70, and we financially support an orphanage in Uganda, uh, and we're happy to be here. And it's like, those two stories could not be more different, but those two stories coming together, there's mm -hmm. so much power in that. I think a lot of people in churches, when they begin to feel this burden in their heart, they're not quite sure, who do I talk to about it? Where do I take it? And informational lunches like this is, is the solution to that. This is where you go to talk about it and where you take it. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people feel like maybe I'm alone in this. You know, I, I'm, I, I keep this to myself because I'm not sure if there's other people that share this passion. And then you come into a room like that and you look around and you realize I'm definitely not alone in this. Mm -hmm. 
That's yeah. good. Um, and I know you'll talk a little bit. Uh, they'll, you'll talk a little bit more about the study um, at the informational. But I know that the orphan care, all-in orphan care study, mm -hmm. that's coming up starting in October. Yes. Um, that was actually material that uh, you were part of creating yeah. and that you wrote. Um, can you just give us a little um, overview of mm -hmm. what that study is about? If someone might be interested in signing up for that. Absolutely. And so, as we said this morning. Um, the opportunities to get involved are endless. And so this study is intended to move people in that direction. And so it really begins where we were this morning with laying the theological framework. What is it that really compels us into this? What is it that sustains us in this? Mm -hmm. I mean, we would say the gospel sustains us in it, even when it's hard and difficult. We're reminded that uh, the gospel reminds us that it's worth it. Um, mm -hmm. But then moving into just some practicals, helping to debunk maybe some false thinking that mm -hmm. maybe we think it's like this, but in actuality, it's not going to be like mm -hmm. this. Helping people identify their unique role in this. And so again, even in the study, we move towards talking about the body of Christ and helping people identify you're an ear, an eye, a hand, a foot, and here's different mm -hmm. opportunities to get involved. Uh, and so the intent of the study is for anyone to engage and then to move people in a direction that helps them gain clarity on the unique way that they can get involved. It's certainly not designed to pigeonhole anyone into any one uh, right. route, okay, right? Good. It's designed to help people explore the variety of ways that maybe God's calling them to engage. Great, yeah. awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here today um, and for your ministry. Yeah. Um, just continued prayers for that. And we just wait expectantly to see what God uh, is going to do here through Orphan Care. So thank cool. you for being with Absolutely, us. Absolutely, a pleasure. Great, and thank you for joining us. Thank you for your questions. We'll see you back here next week for Postscript. Thanks for joining us for Postscript. Help us keep the podcast interactive by submitting your questions during the morning services. Learn more at faithbridge.org postscript.